Here we go. West Hills Friends is a Quaker meeting in Portland, Oregon. You can find more information about our community at westhillsfriends.org. As a Quaker community, we encourage everyone to share from their hearts, especially as it pertains to God's leading in their lives. These words are shared into a community that values the opportunity to respond and dialogue about what is said. The responses and dialogue are not included in this recording. The views expressed in this content are solely those of the original contributors. And do not necessarily speak for the entire West Hills Friends community. Thank you for listening. Have a wonderful day. Thank you for listening. Have a wonderful day. The children may go to their activities now. ruined it. <laughs> Good morning, friends. How do I make this thing stand up? <laughs> ah. uh, help me, thank you. <laughs> Doesn't want to pick me up. Okay, good. Good morning, friends. We are going to be sharing from several scriptures this morning, and I do not advise you to try to follow along, but rather to listen. <clears throat> we'll be reading stories from Matthew 9, Mark 5, Mark 6, and Matthew 20, and I'll be happy to share later if anyone wants to go back and check where we're reading from, but I promise you it's there. <laughs> As Jesus was walking along, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at his tax collector's booth. Follow me and be my disciple, Jesus said to him. So Matthew got up and followed him. Later, Matthew invited Jesus and his disciples to his home as dinner guests, along with many tax collectors and other disreputable sinners. But when the religious leaders saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with such scum? When Jesus heard this, he said, healthy people don't need a doctor, sick people do. Then he added, now go and learn the meaning of the scripture. I want you to show mercy, not offer sacrifices, for I have come to call not those who think they're righteous, but those who know they are sinners. Jesus got into the boat again and went back to the other side of the lake where a large crowd gathered around him on the shore. A woman in the crowd had suffered for 12 years with constant bleeding. She had suffered a great deal from many doctors, and over the years she had spent everything she had to pay them, but she had gotten no better. In fact, she had gotten worse. She had heard about Jesus, so she came up behind him through the crowd and touched his robe, for she thought to herself, if I can just touch his robe, I will be healed. Immediately, the bleeding stopped, 
and she could feel in her body that she had been healed of her terrible condition. Jesus realized at once that healing power had gone out of him, so he turned around in the crowd and asked, Who touched my robe? His disciples said to him, Look at this crowd pressing around you. How can you ask who touched me? But he kept on looking around to see who had done it. Then the frightened woman, trembling at the realization of what had happened to her, came and fell to her knees in front of him and told him what she had done. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Your suffering is over. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Let's go by ourselves to a quiet place and rest a while. He said this because there were so many people coming and going that Jesus and his apostles didn't even have time to eat. So they left by boat for a quiet place where they could be alone. But many people recognized them and saw them leaving, and people from many towns ran ahead along the shore and got there ahead of them. Jesus saw the huge crowd as he stepped from the boat, and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. Late in the afternoon, his disciples came to him and said, this is a remote place and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to, to the nearby farms and villages and buy something to eat. But Jesus said to them, you feed them. With what, they asked. We'd have to work for months to earn enough money to buy food for all of these people. How much bread do you have, he asked. Go and find out. They came back and reported, we have five loaves of bread and two fish. Then Jesus told the disciples to have the people sit down in groups on the green grass. Jesus took the five loaves and two fish, looked up to heaven, and blessed them. Then breaking the loaves into pieces, he kept giving the bread to the disciples so they could distribute it to the people. He also divided the fish for everyone to share. They all ate as much as they wanted. And afterwards, the disciples picked up 12 baskets of leftover bread and fish. A total of 5,000 men and their families were fed. Jesus told this story. For the kingdom of heaven is like the landowner who went out early one morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay the normal daily wage and sent them out to work. At nine o'clock in the morning, he was passing through the marketplace and saw some people standing around doing nothing. So he hired them, telling them he would pay them whatever was right at the end of the day. So they went to work in the vineyard. At noon and again at three o'clock, he did the same thing. At five o'clock that afternoon, he was in town again <coughs> and saw some more people standing around. He asked them, why haven't you been working today? They replied, because no one hired us. The landowner then told them, then go out and join the others in my vineyard. That evening, he told the foreman to call the workers in and pay them, beginning with the last <coughs> workers first. When those hired at five o'clock were paid, each received a full day's wage. When those hired first came to get their pay, they assumed they would receive more. But they, too, were paid a day's wage. 
When they received their pay, they protested to the owner. Those people worked only one hour, and yet you've paid them just as much as you've paid us, who worked all day in the scorching heat? He answered one of them, friends, I haven't been unfair. Didn't you agree to work all day for the usual wage? Take your money and go. I wanted to pay this last worker the same as you. Is it against the law for me to do what I want with my money? Should you be jealous because I am kind to others? So those who are last now will be first then, and those who are first will be last. Jesus is my hero. I picked four examples this morning of why, but I could have picked just about any story in the Gospels, and each would have been full of examples of a way of moving through the world that is endlessly instructive, endlessly challenging, and endlessly inspiring. I want to talk this morning about the idea of welcome. This congregation is part of the Community of Welcoming Congregations, an interfaith collective of religious communities who seek to model a stance that affirms and fully welcomes lesbian, gay, transgender, bisexual, and other queer folks into full participation in religious community. This congregation has done good work to reach its current stance of welcome. And to the extent we are welcoming, we do indeed follow Jesus's example. Jesus is the hero of welcome. I want to suggest, though, that the work of learning to be welcoming is never done. Here again, Jesus is our example. I don't know of any religious community, indeed any community, whose work is done when it comes to learning to be truly welcoming in the way that Jesus was. The term hero's welcome usually means welcoming home a hero, but I'd like to suggest that Jesus is our example of a true hero's welcome. That is, an example of welcome that embodies and enacts heroic faith. The four stories we read this morning provide examples, though certainly not the limits of a hero's welcome as embodied in the life of our hero, Jesus. Jesus' behavior and words reveal that he understood that he, like us, lived in a culture where it was viewed as legitimate, indeed downright appropriate and even holy, to exclude certain sorts of people in all sorts of ways from fellowship in religious community. Tax collectors, for example, were collaborators with a state and known cheats who sold out to the Roman occupiers and collected even more than what was owed in order to line their own pockets. They were scum in the way that we in the room might describe some in our own culture. The sick also were pariahs. In Jesus' time, Little was understood about science that we take for granted today, so the sick were thought to be sick as a sign of God's judgment. Their sickness was beyond doubt, a sign of punishment for sin. 
Women, too, were relegated to second-class status, separated from men in public, private, and religious life. A true religious leader certainly would not converse with a woman in public. And under Jewish law, a woman's monthly menstruation made her unclean. A woman who had a bleeding disorder would have been an absolute pariah. And what does Jesus do? He transcends all these ways of thinking that were as deeply ingrained in his culture as the standards and rules we take for granted in our own culture. He doesn't struggle with these societal expectations or try to work out a compromise with religious leaders before he acts or allow these insiders in provisionally until they can establish that they deserve to be included or set up a meeting for clearness or even bother to justify his actions at all. He just moves past all barriers that those in his culture would have experienced as beyond question with assurance and clarity and grace. Jesus approaches a tax collector right out in public and invites him straight into his inner circle, then aligns with him in a very public way by accepting the man's invitation to his turf, in his home, packed full of more undesirables. Jesus' idea of welcome doesn't involve Matthew conforming to Jesus' world. Jesus enters Matthew's world, allows him to feed him, probably with food bought with resources he stole from people, and associates with this man's friends. Jesus' association with the woman with a bleeding disorder is just as radical. He was on his way to heal the daughter of an important religious leader when this event happened, and the woman approached him. Now, that original healing message, message or mission makes sense for Jesus' reputation as an up-and-coming religious leader. Hiring a re another religious leader's daughter was a good move. But it's deep, so it's deeply unusual that Jesus would allow himself to be diverted from that undeniably important work by a woman who had the absolute gall to touch his cloak in public. She should not have been close enough to Jesus to do that. How dare she? A woman and with a bleeding disorder. Yet what does Jesus do? He stops. He asks the seemingly ridiculous question in a huge crowd. Who touched me? He calls attention to the woman's actions, not to shame her, but to make her this pariah who has lived a life in pain and, and invisibility, the center of his story. She is afraid at first, but he simply gives her the floor. What's going on with you, he inquires. Jesus shifts the focus onto a person whose best shot before this moment was to live in the shadows. He is curious about her. He makes space for her story. Who of us would do this? How likely is it that the most marginalized person in our culture, the person whom everyone avoids for fear of contagion, the person who everyone is sure bears the mark of God's judgment, how likely is it that such a person would even dream of coming near us and asking something of us in some small way? And if she did, would it flow out of us? 
accompanied by an invitation to tell her story? Would we commend her courage in approaching us? Would we allow her to become the center of our story, even if it meant diverting us from work that was more obviously laudable? The feeding of the 5,000 men with women and children besides is another rich example. Jesus and his disciples are tired and hungry. His disciples quite understandably try to manage the situation, to do self-care. No way do they have a means of feeding all these people. They need to take care of themselves. And what does Jesus, hungry and tired Jesus, do? He notices that the people are hungry and tired too. Rather than prioritizing his own needs ahead of theirs, he sends his disciples to look for resources among the people themselves. John's gospel notes that the loaves and fishes come from the lunchbox of a boy in the crowd. Jesus glides right over the very reasonable concern about logistics and limited resources and enlists the people to feed the people. His response demonstrates an expectation that there is plenty for everyone when everyone is included. Everybody's in. Jesus' idea of welcome makes it into his stories, too. The vineyard owner hires a crew and then keeps going out and hiring more. He sees people standing around, those left behind, those without employment, those thought not useful. He gives them work and then compensates them in a way that transcends all prevailing wisdom about who is deserving and what they deserve. As in all the other stories, he rejects conventional wisdom about who is worthy, who deserves attention, and what is a fair way of distributing resources. In Jesus' economy, everyone belongs. Everyone is welcome. There is enough for everyone, and everyone's contribution is important. The same pattern is everywhere in the Gospels. The hero of Jesus' most famous parable is a Samaritan, a member of a class to which the Jewish people felt morally superior. Yet in Jesus' story, the Samaritan displays wisdom beyond that of the leaders inside Jesus' own synagogue. Jesus engages an, an actual Samaritan woman in conversation out in the open, again defying social norms. And instead of judging her life circumstances, he invites her into fellowship. When another woman caught in the act of adultery is brought to Jesus, he floats right past expectations that she should be stoned and instead treats her with dignity and notices that the way people were attempting to use this woman to trap him said more about their need of God than it did about him or the woman. He applauds the actions of a prostitute who defies all social norms by washing his feet with expensive perfume and drying them with her hair. Make no mistake, actions like these required actual heroism. Jesus is actually a superhero of welcome. He regularly aroused anger and criticism, especially from the religious establishment. Actions like these eventually got him killed. 
Every person, every community, every culture has people who those on the inside at best struggle to accept, and indeed who we may feel very justified in rejecting or schooling or attaching conditions to their participation in our community. But what Jesus' example teaches us is that the people we find hardest to include generally have something to teach us about ourselves. They point us to our own limits. And the work of learning to accept and embrace and love and learn from those folks who most challenge us is actually our work, not theirs. Though they too often end up being the ones who must struggle to find a way in to be, and to be accepted on our terms. So when we aspire to be a welcoming church, we have said a mouthful. Jesus is the superhero of welcome. He exemplifies a whole different way of relating to the world with no need for worthiness tests, no need for deciding who is in and who is out. In his economy, everyone is in. Everyone is worthy of embrace. Everyone has something to teach even and especially those at the bottom, those at the margins, the sat upon and spat upon, as my dear Stan always used to say. The distinctions that trip us up didn't trouble Jesus or even slow him down. In each of these stories, he glides past social obstacles and violate norms that are believed to be beyond question. He sees past what seems obvious and he, he sees past what seem to be obvious limits on his own resources. Who he welcomes and how he welcomes them regularly defies the expectations of everyone, even his own followers and the religious elite of his day. Jesus encounters social and religious obstacles and resource limits the way Neo encountered bullets at the end of the matrix. When the bullets come at him, he holds his hand up, stops them, picks one out of midair, and looks at it. Jesus means to be our example. He invites us to follow him, but we can expect that following him will involve a lifelong exercise of practicing freeing our minds. At our best, we are more often like Neo at the beginning of the Matrix when he first attempts to leap tall buildings by offering himself a pep talk. Free my mind, free my mind, and then runs and falls flat. But we can learn to soar, to love and welcome with practice. Jesus' brand of welcome is learned and practiced and freely given to those who learn to want it. Richard Rohr, who has taught me a lot about following Jesus, says it this way. Jesus never has any checklist test before he heals someone. He just says, as it were, are you going to ask for or allow yourself to be touched? If so, let's go. The touchable ones are the healed ones. It's pretty much that simple. There's no doctrinal or moral test whatsoever. Jesus doesn't check if the people he heals, or I would add, the people he welcomes, 
are Jewish, gay, baptized, or in their first marriage, there's only one question which he asks in various ways. Do you want to be healed? If the answer is a vulnerable, trusting one, the person is always healed, usually on several levels. How might we invite the spirit to enlarge our expectations of who and how we are called to be welcoming? How might we learn to welcome in the ways that Jesus did? What freedom awaits us when we do?